Now we're cooking with grease. Again, I appreciate the congregation inviting me to preach this series of lessons. I apologize for the uh, confusion and uh, I changed, changed my mind on the lesson at the last uh, minute. And there was a, a song I just talked with Greg Goat. Greg, Greg Goat? No, Go Great. Uh, with the lesson, and, and so uh, I appreciate Andrew for turning that over to Corey, and Corey uh, doing such a fine job with that. We're going to talk tonight about the true vine. Jesus said in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. And we're going to look at this passage, verses 1 through 11 this evening, and see what we can learn from this and and learn about responsibilities and obligations that we have and the benefits that come from fulfilling those responsibilities. And, of course, the detriment uh, that we can do ourselves if we don't fulfill these responsibilities. Jesus, the master teacher, used a variety of figures involving vineyards. He used these figures to illustrate various aspects of the kingdom of God uh, that he came to establish on the earth. Keep in mind that Jesus came from a spiritual place. He came from heaven. No man on earth had ever been to heaven. He came to declare God, to demonstrate God, to show us by his own actions and his words what God is and who God is. And he came to teach us about the kingdom that God had planned from before the foundation of the earth. But the only way we could come to understand any, any spiritual matters is if Jesus used things in the material realm to illustrate those things. And I really and truly believe that God created just such a world as could be used in this way so when you see the parables of Jesus, he uses a variety of figures from the material world, things that people were very familiar with. A sower went out to sow, for example. And so, uh, and, and the, the catch of fish, you know, the net with the fishes, and things from everyday life to illustrate spiritual principles. And so here he's talking about a relationship with him and the proper relationship with him, the only proper relationship with him and the benefits of that and of course the detriment that we do ourselves if we don't take advantage of that the metaphor of vine and branches illustrates the necessity of maintaining a spiritual connection with him as we go through life so when he says i am the true vine he's not talking about true in opposed in opposition to faults He's talking about true in opposition to copy. Many things in the Old Testament, both in the patriarchal and Mosaic Age, far more in the Mosaic Age, were prophetic types of things in the New Testament Age. The temple, for example, divided into the holy place and the most holy place was a prophetic type of the Spiritual kingdom of God with its holy place and most holy place. The church, those on earth, represent or are the fulfillment of that type of the holy place. In the holy place, any of the priests could go and they all would take turns in there 
uh, dealing with the table of showbread, the, uh, the lampstand, and the uh, altar of incense. But once a year, the high priest and the high priest alone would go into the most holy place, or the holy of holies, as it is sometimes called. We are all priests, according to the inspired scriptures, Peter in particular, in 1 Peter chapter 2. And we are in the holy place. We are performing the duties, or we are to be performing the duties of a priest offering up spiritual sacrifices. Jesus alone has gone into the most holy place. And according to the book of Hebrews, he has gone into the holy place as our forerunner. No priest under the law of Moses other than the high priest at any given time could go into the holy of holies. But one day all of God's faithful priests under the new covenant will go into the holy of holies, the most holy place, the true most holy place, of which that most holy place was a mere copy or prophetic type. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's saying, I am a fulfillment of a typical vine, a prophetic uh, type under the Old Testament. In Hebrews chapter 9, 24, we read, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. He was not qualified to go in there. He was not of the tribe of Levi, much less uh, the oldest surviving uh, son of, of Aaron, which would be the high priest of any given time. He was not qualified to go into the temple at all, the holy place or the most holy place. But for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the truth, prophetic types, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. He's there on our behalf, just as the high priest under the old law, under the law of Moses, was in the, holy, uh, the most holy place on behalf of the people to offer up the atoning sacrifice as, a, as an atonement for the sins that they had committed the previous year. So Jesus, when he died, was rose again and ascended back to heaven, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He was in the most holy place, and he began to officiate as our, most, as our high priest, putting his blood on our sins every time we... Uh, Will every time an individual obeys the gospel, the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to that individual. Every time a child of God who sins repents of that sin and, and confesses that sin and comes to God and the brethren for forgiveness, that blood is put to his account. And so Jesus is still in the most holy place officiating. Now, the high priest went in one time and he was only there for a short time on one day and then he would come out. Jesus will not come out of the most holy place until the end of the church age, the kingdom age. And then it would only be to receive all of his priests into the most holy place to be there with him and his father forever. So he's the true vine, not just the copy of the vine. In Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 21, God through the weeping prophet, as Jeremiah is called, said, yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? 
Now, keep in mind that God's people have never, at any given time, have never been faithful very long. We don't know, cannot possibly know, how long Adam and Eve were in the garden before they actually sinned. But when they sinned, they were cast out of the garden. They lost their privilege to be in that garden. And when the world was so full of wickedness, God destroyed everybody except Noah and his wife and their three sons and the three sons' wives because the world was degenerate. Later, he established the kingdom of Israel and put Saul of Tarsus, Saul son of Kish, not Saul of Tarsus, as the first king. He was a miserable failure, and God replaced him with David. And under David, and also under Solomon, the kingdom flourished. But Solomon was a, a wicked, became a wicked man, an idolatrous man. And God said, I am going to divide the kingdom. He promised not to do it in the days of Solomon for the sake of his father David. But when Solomon's son Rehoboam became king over the United Kingdom, ten of the northern, the ten northern tribes rebelled and they formed the kingdom of Israel. They took the name Israel, leaving the tribes of Judah and uh, Benjamin to be the southern kingdom Judah being the primary tribe, the largest of the tribes, it became the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Israel went immediately into idolatry, never looked back. God tolerated them for I don't know how long. But finally, he allowed the northern kingdom to be destroyed utterly by the Assyrians. Judah remained faithful for a while, but then they became wicked they would have a wicked king, and the people would be wicked following his example. A, a righteous king would rise up, and he would have some reforms, and the people would clean up their act uh, following his example. But finally, Manasseh, the son, I believe, of Hezekiah, was so wicked, God declared, I am going to send you into captivity. He could not destroy the southern kingdom of Judah like he could the northern kingdom of Israel. And the reason was he had already promised through Jacob in Genesis chapter 50 that Judah was the royal tribe and that it was through Judah that the Messiah would come. So Judah had to be preserved, but they needed to be punished. So God sent them into captivity for 70 years. And so Israel time and again became a degenerate plant. Jeremiah lived during the days just before that 70-year captivity. It was through Jeremiah that God revealed that the captivity would be a 70-year-long captivity. And this is why. And so, yet I had planted you a noble vine. God, when God created the kingdom of Israel and gave them the first coded law that he had given anybody, codified law. It was a law which, if followed, would have caused them to shine brighter than any other nation, yet so often they degenerated to the point where they were no better, morally speaking, than some of these other nations. And that's what Jeremiah is talking about. And so they were a noble vine that was a type, a prophetic type, 
of Jesus who would be the true vine. But unlike that copy, that prophetic type, Jesus would never be degenerate. So I am the true vine. He goes on to say, and my father is the vine dresser. Some translations say husbandman. I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. The vine dresser is the one who, who owns the vineyard. And he's the one that has the primary responsibilities of caring for that vineyard. He may hire some people to work under him. But the, the vineyard owner, he's the vine dresser. And he makes sure things are done to keep that vine in proper order so that it will do what God intended for it to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul wrote, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? The Corinthians were divided over preachers. Some said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. They said, is Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. And he says, it doesn't really matter who preached the gospel to you. It doesn't really matter who baptized you. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered. Paul established a church at Corinth. After Paul left, Apollos came and he watered what Paul had established. He preached to those who were already a congregation. And I'm confident there were other people that obeyed the gospel there, but he was basically watering what Paul had established. And so that's what Paul is saying. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything himself, nor he who waters, Apollos, they didn't deserve any kind of following. They didn't want a following. They weren't vying for any kind of following. They were just doing the Lord's work, the work that the Lord had appointed them to do. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. He is everything. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. Paul and Apollos were united in that they were both serving the one true and living God. We are one. We are not in opposition to one another. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Paul as the establisher of the Corinthian church, Apollos as the waterer. For we are God's fellow workers, Paul and Apollos. You are God's field. You're not our field. You're not mine and you're not Apollos's. You're not Cephas's. You are God's building. That's a different figure, but the same is true regarding the vineyard. We are God's building. We are God's field. We are God's vineyard. And he'll do with the vineyard as he sees fit. Because as God, he knows exactly what the vineyard needs. He knows what the vine needs. And he will do what is necessary to keep that vine productive to accomplish what he wants it to accomplish. He goes on to say in verse 2, Jesus does, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, 
he takes away. God's every vine, every physical vine, every typical vine, we might say, is to produce fruit. And the same thing is true with the true vine. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Why? It is not fulfilling its God-given function. The Jews and proselytes had the privilege of being the first to hear the gospel, for they were the remnant of the noble vine that was Israel. But those who rejected the gospel were broken off as branches that would not bear fruit. On Pentecost, no telling how many people were there. Some have suggested at least a million Jews and proselytes were in Jerusalem on the Pentecost. But how many obeyed the gospel? 3,000. Somebody says, well, that's a lot of people. Well, probably wasn't all that many considered how many were probably, were probably there. The rest were broken off. And so here were these people from the typical vine, the noble vine, who were preserved as branches because they obeyed the gospel. Those who rejected the gospel were broken off. And this is true everywhere the gospel was preached. Those who disobeyed the gospel, refused or, or neglected to obey the gospel, were broken off. In Romans eleven seventeen, and some of the branches were broken off, and you... Now, some of the branches, he's referring to the Jews. In Rome, there was some tension there between the Gentiles and the Jews. The Jews seemed to think that they were privileged citizens in the kingdom of God because of their heritage. The Romans, on the other hand, thought that they were really the privileged citizen of God because so many Jews were disobedient to the gospel. And that because of the Jews' disobedience, the gospel in each place, he preached to the Jews first. Then he would turn to the Greeks, the Gentiles, when the Jews failed to respond or ceased to respond. And so the Gentiles in Rome, they, were, they thought they were better. He says, no, some of the branches were broken off, the Jews. Yes, that's true. And you, Gentiles, became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Here are the, olive, the figures of the olive tree, but it's the same as the vine. It represents God's people, God's spiritual people. Therefore, Verse 22, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, those who rejected the gospel, those branches that were broken off, severity. But toward you, those of you who obeyed the gospel, goodness. If, notice that condition there, if you continue in his goodness, his goodness is conditional. His goodness has to be continued in. We have to continue meeting the conditions of His goodness. We have to fulfill the proper function that He has given to us, especially as it relates to the, to the true vine that we noticed a moment ago, and we'll get back to that. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And so He's telling the Gentiles, don't be so proud. If He cut the Jews off, He'll cut you off. And He'll cut you off on the same basis He cut them off. Failure to act responsibly either in recepting the gospel or a failure to act responsibly by uh, ceasing to be faithful to God in obedience to the gospel. 
In Matthew 13 and verse 22, in the parable of the sower, Jesus said, Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. And here's a man who, or people, who were fruitful for a while. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, like the thorns in the parable, grew up and choked the word. And the influence of the word was choked out of their lives. And they became unfruitful. And eventually, if they continued in that process of being unfruitful, they would be cut off. In Luke 8, 14, the same parable, Luke's account. Now, the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. Now, back here, he says the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Luke says, well, you know, Jesus also said, pleasures of life. Now, God wants us to enjoy life. There's nothing wrong with pleasure in and of itself. But not pleasure for the sake of pleasure. We should never seek pleasure as an end, but only as a means to an end, as a means to refresh ourselves, perhaps, so that we can uh, take the load off of our, our mind, get our mind off our problems, so that we can get, get to thinking right again and get back to living a productive life. We've got to take our mind off of these deceitful, off of these riches and, 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 and these other things that could detract us from God. But don't seek after pleasures of life primarily. That's the problem here. They brought no fruit to maturity. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Now, for those who might not know, and I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence here by reading this, but pruning is a practice involving the selective removal of certain parts of the plant, such as branches, buds, or roots. Reasons to prune plants include dead wood removal, shaping by controlling or directing growth, improving or maintaining health of that which you're pruning, reducing risk from falling branches, preparing nursery specimens, a tree nursery, not a nursery for children, for transplanting and both harvesting and increasing the yield or quality of flowers and fruits. The practice entails targeted removal of diseased, damaged, dead, non-productive, structurally unsound, or otherwise unwanted, by God in this case, tissue from crop and landscape plants in general. The smaller the branch that is cut, the easier it is for a woody plant to compartmentalize the wound and thus limit the potential for pathogen intrusion and decay. It is therefore preferable to make any necessary 
formative structural pruning, uh, pruning cuts to young plants rather than removing large, poorly placed branches from mature plants. So God, he, he might give you a little while. Well, I don't know how long God gives us. Nobody knows how long God will tolerate us in, in our sins, how long he will give us to, to repent. I know in, in the book of Revelation, one of the seven churches of Asia, John mentions the Jezebel, a false teacher. And Jesus says through John, I gave you space to repent, and you didn't repent. I don't know what the spa- how much space he gave her, but she didn't repent. And God was about to bring judgment upon her. The church there in that city needed to be pruned. And Jezebel was one of those woody parts that needed to be cut off. For the sake of the congregation. And so he, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. So some pruning is necessary. As we grow in, as Christians, we discover things in our lives that are not really productive of a healthy spiritual life. They may not be wrong in and of themselves. But they may hinder us in our full service to God. And we sometimes come to realize, hopefully sooner rather than later, this needs to be pruned. Now, God does the pruning, but he does it through the word. And as we study his word, we see this needs to be pruned and we take the proper actions as agents of God. Again, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The life of a Christian is presented under many figures. One of those figures is a race. The race needs to be run, and the race needs to be won. Well, against whom are we racing? Well, I guess you say we're racing against time, because we're getting older. Every one of us. Some of us seem to be getting older faster than others. (laughs) We don't know when life is going to take us or death is going to overtake us. We could die in a ripe old age or we could die in an automobile accident on the way home from the meeting tonight. We don't know when death is going to take us. We need to be prepared for death. So we need to make sure that at any given moment in our lives, we are running with endurance. The race that is set before us, and that means we're going to have to lay aside every weight, anything and everything that could hinder us in that run. And the sin which so easily ensnares us, lay it aside. It's not going to do you any good. Again, well, the sin would be wrong in and of itself. Some things, again, aren't necessarily wrong in themselves, but they're not going to help us. And so let's let go of those things. He goes on to say that it may bear more fruit. That's the reason that God prunes every branch that bears fruit. There are leaves and shoots, things things that are taking nutrients from the... There are minerals in the soil. When it rains, 
the, the rainwater and the minerals combine to make a soil solution, and any and all plants absorb that soil solution through their roots. And it is as a result of the absorbing absorption of that soil solution that the plant grows. But if there's a, a, a little twig out here that is taking nutrients but it's not producing any fruit, that needs to be cut off. That needs to be cut away. Why? So that a more productive branch can grow in its place. And therefore, the vine itself will be more productive. In Matthew 13, verse 12, whoever has, to him more will be given and he will have abundance. The more fruit you bear, the more God will make you able to bear additional fruit. This is why we see phenomenal growth in certain Christians. We're sometimes amazed at how some Christians seem to grow so rapidly in spirit. Well, i tell you why that is. It's because they have been busy applying themselves to the fulfillment of their responsibilities in obeying God's Word. And yet there are people, we all know them, that have, have been children of God, members of the Lord's Church for years and years and years, and you don't see much of a difference spiritually in them. Some people think, well... I'm a mature Christian because I was baptized 35 years ago. You were just baptized 10 years ago. That person baptized 10 years ago may be far and away more mature than the person baptized 35 years ago. It's a matter of the will. Each person grows in proportion that he is determined to grow. That means he is going to hunger and thirst after righteousness and if and to the extent that he does, he will be filled. Jesus said that in the Beatitudes. In verse 3, he says to the apostles, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, they weren't living under the New Testament. They were living under the Old Testament. There were a lot of things they didn't understand. But what they understood that Jesus told them, they were making application of it to their lives. And they were clean because of the word which he had spoken to them. Not clean by the word alone, but clean by the word when they applied it to their lives. Because again, it's a matter of free human will. In Ephesians 5.26, Jesus died for the church that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Now, I don't know what the washing of water could be if it's not water baptism. Everybody who's ever baptized scripturally was baptized because that's what the Word of God said he needed to do. And he wanted to do what God wanted him to do. Sometimes people say, well, you believe in a, a works religion because you believe you have to be baptized. I believe in a faith religion because I don't believe you have to be baptized. Well, we'll look again. We'll look at that. Maybe in a little bit, but uh, he sanctified and cleansed the church with a washing of water by the word. The word says, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. 
The word says to believers, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of sins. Those who believe and repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of sins, that's what they'll receive, the remission of sins. And after three, three days after he saw Jesus, three days spent in prayer, Saul of Tarsus was told by a man sent by Jesus, and now why do you tarry? Rise and be baptized and wash away your water. Wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. Some think calling on the name of the Lord means prayer. No non-Christian was ever commanded, much less encouraged, to pray in the New Testament. No one but a baptized individual was ever commanded to pray. Now, Cornelius was a praying man. He was not a Christian. He was not saved. He needed to be saved. And an angel appeared to him, told him, send for Peter. He'll tell you words whereby you will be saved. And when Peter came and preached the gospel, Cornelius and those with him obeyed the gospel and were saved by the washing of water, by the word. And that's the only way anybody can be saved. It doesn't mean they don't have to repent. Certainly doesn't mean they don't have to believe. If they don't believe, they won't submit to the water baptism. And so both of those are necessary. Repentance, belief, repentance, confession of faith, and baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10.22 here were these Hebrew Christians in and around the environs of Jerusalem, many of whom had already given up the spiritual blessings they had in Christ by going back to that old sacrificial system that was nothing more than a prophetic type of what they had. They gave up the reality and went back to the shadow. And the book of Hebrews is written to stave off further abandonment of the, of the Jews to the gospel. So he said, let us draw near with a true heart. That is, let's pray. Let's get serious about this. Let, let's not depart. Let's draw near in full assurance of faith. They had abandoned their faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Again, I don't know when they would have had their bodies washed with pure water if it wasn't when they were baptized. I've heard brethren say, well, that's not talking about baptism, Bob. Brethren said that. I said, well, when, was he, when, was he, when were their bodies washed with pure water? Oh, that's just a figure. Well, I understand that it's a figure, but figures mean something. I heard a debate one time, and they, they settled on, they were talking about Galatians 3 and verse uh, 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, that put on Christ, and the uh, denominational preacher said, well, that's just figurative. And the, the, the Christian said, well, yeah, but it's figurative of something. What's it figurative of? Figurative doesn't mean untrue. There's a reality in the figure. And that's one thing we need to understand about figurative language. It means something. And, and the, the one who wants to understand God's word, he will think about that figure. 
and try to figure out the reality of that figure. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. How does one abide in Christ? He abides in Christ by abiding in a right relationship with him. A branch that is still attached to a vine is in a right relationship with the vine. A branch that bears fruit, I should say, has a right relationship to the vine. Once it is disconnected from the vine, it can bear no fruit. And if it bears fruit in spite of its connection to the vine, it will be broken off. A branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. That's in the natural realm. Neither can you in the spiritual realm unless you abide in me. Therefore, Jesus says, I believe Matthew 10, 32, we'll know here in a second. Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You cannot abide in Christ while you are denying him. And if you are failing to produce fruit, you are denying Christ. Because you are demonstrating a lack of faith that God can do for you what he wants to do for you. You are denying the fruit that God, or the fact that you can bear fruit, which God wants you to do. And again, it's our responsibility to bear fruit. He designed us so that we can. But we're free will creatures. We have to want to in order to do it. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. We abide in him and avoid being broken off by bearing fruit. Matthew 13, 23, back to the uh, parable of the sower. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now you determine whether your heart is wayside soil, rocky soil, thorny soil, or good soil. Now the soil couldn't do anything about that in the figure. But in the reality, we can. We can determine whether we're going to have a good heart or not. A good-hearted person is a person who wants to do the Lord's will with all his heart. Lean not upon your own understanding, but uh, believe in the Lord with all your heart. A heart's got to be involved in that. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. This is the branch that but does not bear fruit. That shows that though there may be a physical connection, it is not absorbing the nutrients that it needs to bear fruit. And it's going to be broken off because it is a fruitless branch. Cast out as a branch and withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure out what that figure is all about. 
Both John the Baptist and Jesus talked about being cast into the fire. The Apostle John talked about being cast into the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. Jesus said it was prepared for the devil and his angels, but those who refuse to obey God, they're going to have their part in it also. Even all liars, Revelation 21 and verse 8. And so we can't afford to be that. In Matthew 3, verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. A tree is there, therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cast down and thrown into the fire. He may be talking here about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the uh, physical destruction of Jerusalem and the spiritual destruction of those Jews who refuse to obey God. He could be talking about the judgment. Both are true. Because those who weren't ready for physical death in the first century died a spiritual death as well as a physical death. And those who are not ready for physical death in the 21st century will die a spiritual death as well as a physical death. In Matthew 3.12, his winnowing uh, fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. A sense in which that took place in Jerusalem in AD 70. But that may have been a prophetic type of the coming judgment of God on those who refuse not, who refuse to obey the gospel. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Now, there are other verses that limit this. He's not saying if you pray for a 2022 Cadillac when they come out in this fall that you're going to get one. For whatever you desire that is within in harmony with his will, and you ask for that, he's going to give it to you. You know, sometimes he knows what we need. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says that. But we need to ask. Just as a, a parent wants his son to ask him for blessings so he can give them to him. If you shower your children with blessings without them asking for it, they come to expect it without asking for it. If you wait until they ask for it, they appreciate a little more the, the fact that they need to ask for that. And so you withhold that until they ask. And by withholding it, they realize that they really want it all the more. But don't give them too much too soon. In John chapter 8, verses 30 to 32, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, some, a fellow emailed me not too awful long ago. I guess it's been a couple of years. He said he quoted verse 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And somebody told me, now that's not true. You've got to quote the whole verse. And I looked at it and said, well, that's right. He's talking to those who believed in him. He's not talking to just anybody. He said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, 
you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He's not saying whoever, whoever doesn't abide in his word will be made free by, free by the truth. You've got to abide in his word. There's responsibility. There's obligation. Again, it has to be an act of the free will of man in order to receive what God wants to bless us with. But by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. We can be his disciples, but through a failure to bear fruit, we can cease to be his disciple. A disciple is one who learns and follows, or more particularly, learns for the purpose of following. You can learn from Christ and not follow. You're not a disciple. We've got to learn in order to follow. We learn what he wants us to do, and we follow him by doing what he wants us to do. Then we, he is glorified. And we bear much fruit, and then we continue to be his disciples. Fruit bearing is proof of faithful discipleship. Hence, when the disciples of the Lord bear fruit, they reflect honor, not only on their Savior, but upon him who sent him into the world. Moreover, they demonstrate that they are indeed faithful disciples when they thus earnestly and effectively carry out his will. Fruit-bearing includes every activity of the Christian. It includes, but is not limited to, acts of love and Christian charity. It embraces every act which Jesus endorses and which he would, if present, do, but not being present, must depend on his followers to do for him. If Jesus was here, what are the things that he would do? He would do the same kind of things that he did in the first century. And we can read in the Gospels and see the kind of things that he did. Now, yes, he performed a lot of miracles, but a lot of those miracles were also acts of compassion. That means we need to follow suit. We need to be compassionate people. That's involved in fruit bearing. So he's dependent upon us to do that because he's not here. I think it was Andrews Sunday morning. Uh, no, it's Jerry, I guess. You let us sing it Sunday morning, didn't you, Jerry? He has no hands but our hands. He has no feet but our feet. We are the Lord's body. And he operates on this earth through us or he does not operate. Oh, yes, there is providence. I understand. There's certain things that he does that he can only do through his disciples. Only if we do those things are we his disciples. Jesus spoke these words. This is John chapter 17. Lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, this is John 17 verse 1. The hour has come. He's about to be crucified. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Jesus is about to go to the cross. By doing that, he will be glorifying God. God would be glorifying him by the resurrection. And by this mutual glorification, Jesus glorifying the Father, the Father glorifying him 
they were demonstrated what our Christian life is all about. We glorify God in this life, and when this life is over, He'll glorify us by giving us a place in glory. But we've got to be faithful unto death, Revelation 2, verse 10. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now he's given us work to do. We are, as I mentioned earlier, a spiritual priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Do you know what those sacrifices are? I'm not going to. I've got a lesson on that. Hadn't planned on preaching it. But we've got some spiritual sacrifices we need to be offering up. The sacrifice of praise is one of those in Hebrews. And uh, sacrificial giving. Not only to God, but to, the, to others, to brethren. There are a lot of sacrifices that we need to make. Be making on a regular basis. And only as we do so are we truly his disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. What does that mean? Abide in the condition of his love. That doesn't mean he won't love us. You know, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But he can't love the world like he loves his own children. John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, uh, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. So there's a love he has for his children he can't have for the world. He loves them. He demonstrated that love by giving Jesus Christ to die on the cross. But there's a special love he has for us. Just as we are to love everybody, but we can't love everybody like we love our wives. And I don't mean just in the way that we love them. I mean in the, in, with the intensity. We are to love all children. But we, can, we don't love all children like our children. We can't. Scarface Al Capone. The only good thing I ever heard said about him was he loved his mother. You know, that's, that's good that he loved his mother. Problem is, he didn't love anybody else's mother. And he didn't love any mother's son but his. And so everything he did was self-indulgent to promote himself. He was not abiding in love you know that he did not make his mother proud in the things that he did. So even the love he professed for her was not true love. I believe if she was alive, she was ashamed of him. If she was dead, she would have been ashamed of him if she knew about what he did. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. It was because Jesus loved his father that he fulfilled his father's commands. And if we fulfill the commands God through Jesus Christ has given us, that's a demonstration of our love for him. And that is proof of our discipleship. In John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, loving another was not a new command. But as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That was new. 
Jesus demonstrated that love. He was about to when he told them this. Coming to earth for the purpose of going to the cross was a demonstration of his love. But when he went to the cross, he fully and finally declared in a practical way his love for us. John says in 1 John chapter 3, I don't think I have it here. I've said that before and then it was here. But I'm going to tell you just in case it ain't. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, I believe that he, he gave his life for us and we ought to give our lives for one another. That's sacrifice. That's discipleship. First John 5, 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. I know we think sometimes, well, it's just so hard to obey God. No. The hard part is the determination. The hard part, I guess you could say, if there's a hard part, is mustering the courage. Uh, some of you folks may not even know what I mean by muster, but... Uh, if you've been in the military, you know what muster means. <laughs> you gather. You've got to gather that courage. You've got to, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like leading singing. You know, you, you've got to bring it up from your diaphragm. Uh, and, and you've got to muster that voice. You muster it and you master it in order to sing. And you've got to muster courage. It's in there. You just got to pull it out. And push it out. Demonstrate it where people can see it. That's what the love of God is all about. No, it's, it's not hard once you muster the courage to do it. That's why I believe that the, the word virtue in Second Peter chapter 1 and verses 5, verse 5 I believe, means moral courage. It means the courage of your commitments. And so... Either we were committed to doing the Lord's will when we were baptized or we weren't. Having made a commitment in our baptism, we need to have the courage to follow through on that. In verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. There is no more joyous life than a life of faithful service to God. Through Jesus Christ. We learn from God by Jesus Christ. We learn what God wants us to do by seeing it in Jesus Christ. And, and hearing it from Jesus and from his apostles and, and prophets. Oh, we may think we have joy without obeying the gospel. But we really don't know what joy. Some people mistake pleasure for joy. Uh, you can have fun without really having joy. Joy is kind of like a, uh, a man in the military coming back from a, a deployment and seeing his wife again after maybe a, a six-month or, or year-long absence. Uh, he, he's, he didn't stop loving her when he was over there. And I know there was some joy in thinking about the time that he would come back and be reunited with her, but that could not measure up to the joy he felt when he felt her arms around him again. That's where it's going to be in heaven. 
We can have joy in this life, but it cannot compare to the joy that we'll have in heaven when it's all said and done. Jesus answered him, the first of all commandments, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The key to joy is putting Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. If you want to experience the joy of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, all you've got to do is muster the courage. Muster the courage to make a public declaration of your faith, a public commitment to following the Lord, and then following through on that faith and that commitment by submitting to Him in baptism for the remission of sins. You need to do that. We encourage you to do so while we stand and while we sing.